If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, 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 yes, it is time for the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. I am one of your hosts, Keith Childs. I'm the uh, also the author of Several books, including the one that just released, Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment, baby. And uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Matt and Jamal. Hey, guys. Say howdy to our friends. Hi, friends. This is Jamal. It's a pleasure to be back on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast with you. I am the author of Living for a Living, which is also available in audio format as well as written format. And um, I am also a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes, which are headed to the college football playoffs. And uh, it's great to be back with you all on the Heretic Happy Hour. And that makes me Matt DiStefano. Welcome to be here. Hey. God, no, Keith, that, that voice drives me nuts. I hate that voice. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, so happy to be here. So happy that uh, you have so much energy today, Keith. I felt like last time you were slacking a little bit. Yeah, I was trying to, trying to hold back. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering if you are drinking that new coffee from Wild Foods. Because I'm thinking that's maybe how you got your energy. Mm. Yeah, well, I need some. I, actually, I haven't gotten my wild foods yet, but I'm waiting for it. When I get it, I am going to guzzle that stuff. Yes, yes. Which which brings me to what I want to say. I'm excited. I have an announcement, Jamal, if you're cool with that. Oh, please. please. I have an announcement please. today. Yes, yes. We have um, we have a sponsor Woo-hoo! for the show. And they're, uh, they're a company that I'm super stoked about. Uh, it's called Wild Foods. They've got a website. It's wildfoods.com dot co not dot com dot co and they are all about taking small batch products from small farmers and they have the belief that food is medicine whoa, 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 so they whoa, whoa. wait 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 yeah wait, wait, no, wait. no 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 <laughs> don't don't cut me off don't cut me off I'm, I'm just curious did you say food is medicine <laughs> yes sir that's yes sir and it is and that's this company's mo food is medicine <sighs> so they've got they've got uh Mushrooms that are going to be helpful for your workouts. They've got organic coffee that Keith's going to need to have all that uh, excitement and to keep <laughs> pumping out that radio voice. Uh, they've got wild fish oil, uh, which I'm excited about because I like fish oil. They do a bunch of gluten-free and paleo stuff, and, and that's how I roll. Um, so you all are going to want to check out wildfoods.co. And I've got another exciting announcement that has to do with this. Mm. Are you ready for it? Yeah, please, please. please bring it on. Bring it on. For our listeners, they are willing to give 12% off their order. Wait, 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 wait. Can you say that again? You- I'm gonna say it one more time for the for Jamal in the back for who's not listening. <laughs> I just They're willing to give you here. 12% off. So all your orders, when you check out, when you order all that's good stuff. You're going to check out, you're going to use this promo code, write it down. It is happy hour 12. Do you know how to spell that? H-A-P-P-Y-H-O-U-R 12. The 12 stands for 12% off. Use that promo code. When you check out, you're going to get 12% off your order and you are going to thank me for doing so. Yeah. Hey, by the way, just in case it's happy hour one, two, it's not the word 12. It's the numbers one and two, right? 12. Uh, that's, that's cool. Yes. One, two, happy hour, one, two, happy hour, 12. Yep. Yes. Yep. Actually, I'm really, yes. really glad uh, that you announced that because, I, first of all, I think there is something to this concept of food as medicine. But I love the fact that we have a sponsor now that, because I, I've actually, I think that this is 
I mean, we want our show to be a source of healing. So, and actually if people would go and buy those products that it would be, it, it, first of all, we get supported as a show, but the fact is, um, I really do believe that there is healing available for people out there. And when we start to understand yeah. that, you know, food is medicine, there's things you can do to actively promote your health. It's really cool. And love that this, that wild foods is actually helping heal the world through their business. So we're yeah. really honored to partner with them. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Super cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, I have an announcement too. It's not really an announcement, but um, as you guys know, we, we do have a hotline. Uh, it's not as cool as the announcement we just heard, but it is a fact that we do have a hotline. And I think people should take advantage of that because there are no other podcasts out there that have a hotline like we yeah, do. So the, yeah. um, the, the number, the phone number is 240-343-7379. Again, 240-343-7379. Call 24-7. And you can leave a text if uh, if you don't want to leave a voicemail. And we do have a text. Can we cue that up? Awesome. Okay, this is from a listener. Quote, if we if we ever find another alien being, do you think they would look similar to humans because we're made in the image of God? Mm. Well, here's my, here's my problem okay. with that question. It assumes that humans made in the image of God means we have a head, two arms, two legs, and some sexual organs. Like, I don't think that physical form is what it's referring to when it says we're made in the image of God. Cause technically, I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to take like the Richard Rohr approach, um, like everything, all of creation is the incarnation, right? So it's not just, it's not just human beings. And it's not, even if it is just human beings, it's not our physical flesh and bone and skin and head and arms and legs. And right. It's not our outline. It's not uh, our physical makeup. Right. So I think we could meet uh, an alien, intelligent alien life and it could look, like anything, it could still technically be um, made in the image of God, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a little bit too literal. But um, I, I think I think if we ever met, and I do, we're going to cover aliens eventually, Keith. Yes, so yes. I know yes. you're excited about that. Come eventually, on. we're going to get to that. But my my understanding, I do believe that there is other, uh, there are other sentient beings out there, and I would say to this question specifically. Um, we evolved from like a common, people always say we, we evolved from monkeys. That's not technically true, but we evolved from some sort of common ancestor. Uh, and so we look the way we do. Uh, I don't know if this is even theoretically or possibly true, but if, if another planet somewhere out there in this gigantic, uh, universe or multiverse that we live in, uh, there's, uh, if something evolves from, let's say something else, it might look entirely different right? or they might be way, uh, down the evolutionary road way further than we are. And it might take on a different form, but to be made in the image of God, I think has nothing to do with what we physically look like. Yeah. I just think if an, if an, another alien race or whatever you want to call it looks differently, it just means like the image of God is much more broad and vast than than our little box wants to put mm. that image in. I'm, I have a little different take on this, guys. I think, I think, um, if 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 uh, we found another alien being, they would be short. Um, they might have bald, bald. Maybe, and from Ohio and wearing a leather jacket. Maybe balding. <laughs> may, may may not have a lot of hair. Be kind of bald and short. May have yeah. bigger eyes. <laughs> that's just my. I'm just. I'm just saying. Like that's kind of my sense of that. 
just kidding. Just, just kidding. Are, no. you, are you saying you're an alien? <laughs> I'm just, I'm, oh, I mean, just like the image of God. You know, yeah, just, but of course, no, I actually, I love what you guys have said. You know, I, I think there's, um, interesting question that the question is interesting because there's an assumption that the image of God has a physical form, the way humans, you know, like what you were saying, Keith, like a head, two arms, torso, you know, body parts, that kind of thing. And I think the understanding of image and likeness of God goes way beyond any one particular physical form as we can see through all of creation. There, yeah. there are many, 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 many variations and forms to consciousness. But yeah. great question. Yeah, great good question. Question. yeah, really good. Yeah. Thank you. Look forward to that topic when it comes up. I can't wait. Come on. Yeah. I know Keith, you're jonesing for it, man. I know it. Well, um, hey, I, I think it might be time um for us to transition to everyone's probably one of your favorite parts, and this is a great one this time around. Uh, our heretic of the week. It's the heretic of the week. Hi. I'm Matthew Cortman, and uh, I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi Matthew. Matthew. Yeah, feeling the same <laughs> way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Matt, oh God, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Yeah, awesome. Uh, it, it's it's good to have you. I've talked to you on the phone. We've talked so many times, and now to have you on the show, it's uh, it's an honor. So welcome. Thank you. It feels like a homecoming. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. So as you know, I know you're a regular listener because you're a good person. Um, <laughs> and those uh, two are definitely equivalent. Of course. Just for, the, yeah, for anyone course. listening, they should know that. Yeah, I've, I've of course made that connection. Um, so why, why in the world would anyone consider you, Matt, a heretic? I mean, the list is probably going to be long and diverse, but probably number one currently is that I think it can be a good thing for Christians to say no to things that God says. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's that. I think that's the most <laughs> that's the most heretical thing anyone's ever said. Yeah, pretty much. Either you know, other than that, we're all Christ. I mean, that was pretty much that is probably the most. Wow, well, that's. That, yeah, that's Jamal, but we'll we'll let Jamal slide. Come on, I mean, come on. But as far as our guests go, saying no to God, what are you talking about, man? Oh, well, uh, what am I talking about? Well, don't you read your Bible? Not really. I, actually, <laughs> or, I was still talking about no, that. They I, said I should stay away from that. It can be dangerous, <laughs> you know? I mean... Uh, well, first of all, it doesn't exist. It's not real. There isn't... The Bible doesn't exist. Oh, of course. Of course. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean... Well, yeah. what, do you, what do you mean by that? Do you read your Bible? Come on. Well, what I mean expand by that, that, expand on that. All right, all right. You, you're coaxing me. So, what I mean by that <laughs> is that we for most of us we come from a background in evangelicalism or fundamentalism or any variety of the spectrum that can be given a title and a name. And if there's one thing that is always there, even deeper than the doctrine of inerrancy, is this concept or idea that what God says is automatically always going to be the right thing to do, or not even the right thing, but the thing one must do. And so what's really shocking is that when you actually open up scripture, there are a number of places in the Bible in which it actually depicts the entire opposite of that premise, in which the most faithful people in the Bible tell God no when God says for them to do things. And at first you might think, all right, well, that I know how the story's going to go. God wins. 
except that's not what happens. Instead, the person who's faithful ends up winning and God ends up doing something other than what God said was supposed Mm. to happen. And the craziest part is that it's supposed to be a really good thing and a blessing that God's will didn't end up happening. Can you prove that? Are there any examples? Are there any examples of this? Come yeah, on, I know. It's crazy. That just sounds like you're just making this up. Come on, man. Oh yeah. Oh no. I, I mean, I don't blame anybody for thinking I'm making it up because honestly, when have you ever heard anything like that? Never. But I'm not making it up. I know it's it's <laughs> absolutely crazy. True, true blue heresy, but it's really biblical. So. Let's take um, the best example off the top of the head you can do, which is in Exodus 32 to 34. It's the story of Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. So for those that know the Moses story, this is the part where the uh, Hebrew people down at the bottom of the mountain are getting anxious because Moses hasn't come down. So they decide to go ahead and uh, make an idol and uh, start having a big orgy celebration. And Moses... (laughs) <laughs> of course, you would be the one to amen that. Um, and of course, God, uh, Yahweh, he comes to Moses and says, I am exceedingly angry. I'm pissed. I'm mad at the people. And he's so mad that he says, I've decided to kill them all. Moses, I regret having done the Exodus. I should have just started you with your own family. It was a mistake. So I'm going to murder them all, every last one of them, man, woman, and child. And I'm going to start over with you and like Abraham, make a whole new family and repopulate and do my whole mission. Moses, theoretically working from an evangelical sort of mindset regarding how, you know, the divine human relationship should work. You would assume that Moses, regardless of his own personal convictions, should respond to God and say, you know, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. Isn't that exactly what that that phrase means? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, praise be the Lord. He's always good. You know, any number of epithets to go ahead and start saying and praise and doxology. But Moses doesn't. Instead, he does something heretical. In fact, actually, maybe Moses should be your your heretic of the week, (laughs) not me. I'm I'm just telling you what Moses did. He he died. He told us about it. it. Um, Don't shoot the messenger. So Moses, he tells God, you can't do this because it would be evil. And he says, you'll break your promises that you gave to everyone. You'll fail all the people. And on top of that, you'll pretty much prove to the entire world that you're not a trustworthy God. Mm. So don't do this. Mm. Now, according to most evangelical logic, things only look bad to us because of our poor and failed human vision, our failed understanding to grasp the divine plan. And truly, all we need to do is trust the divine foreknowledge and trust the plan. And Moses doesn't. Well, we should expect things are going to end badly, right? But they don't. God is said to change his mind, end quote, about the evil that he had planned to do. And he doesn't do it. He ends up instead doing what Moses says, which is a whole different plan. Now, hmm. so wait, 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 hold on. But it does say God was planning to do something evil. It does twice. Moses that's, and the narrator. That's crazy. 
Yeah. And now, now, of course, to be clear, the just because there will be somebody there who's like, oh, wait, the word in Hebrew for evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's always something, right? The translation oh, usually put it evil, but there's always somebody out there who's like got the counter argument just to right. just to spare them their chance to interrupt the podcast in their head. <laughs> Uh, the word does, it, it can mean evil, it can mean ruin, disaster. Um, but the point is, the word is, it implies what we take evil to mean, which is something horrendously horrible, something really tragically not good to have happen, right? This is, it's not like just, oh, you know, this was a bad circumstance. This is really bad stuff, which is why some translations put it specifically as an evil thing that's done. Mm-hmm. So just for somebody out there who's like, but it's not, it doesn't have to be evil. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It, it's really not good. If God is goodness, this is, this is still the opposite exactly. of that. So as long as we've established yeah. that. This is so good. Matt, Matt I tell you, um, I've known about your book for a while. You, know, you sent me uh, some advanced copies of it and I've been so excited uh, now that this book is going to be out and people can read it, and uh, it's just astounding. I think I think you have really hit on something truly powerful and unique, and uh, it really flies in the face of so many assumptions that people have made about the Bible. Um, I mean, I, the phrase that's coming to my mind is that whole bumper sticker, you know, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It's yeah, your book is basically saying, nope, um, no, that's not exactly the case. In fact, that maybe. Uh, the fact that God said it should actually cause us to question it and to maybe approach it um, with a little bit, a bit more skepticism, right? Well, certainly, because in the end, on one level, we see here um, in the Bible characters wrestling with God directly about what kind of God He is and how He's represented and what He intends. They're hearing God's very words and they're saying, "No, that's not right," because. I know better based off what you've already revealed to me about who you are. Yeah. So the implication of that is to say, well, what does that mean for us when we don't have God directly, but we're reading about God? Does the principle still remain that we're able to then look at scripture and have the same sort of uh, fight that Israel's name represents? That when we look at the text, that we suddenly realize that we have the ability to engage it in, you know, a full-on fight to say that, well, if the text tells me God acted something much more akin to the devil, do I have to accept it simply because it says God said it? Or do I, in fact, have a biblical freedom to wrestle with that and say, no, far be it from you, God, this is not actually uh, part of the divine image. This is the opposite of who you are and who you've revealed yourself particularly to be in Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I was going to say, I, yeah, I was gonna say uh, Moses and, and um, Joseph are, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob are great examples, but these are, these are guys that were pre-Christ, right? This is before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit poured out. Like we are on the other side of Christ. We have the example of Jesus, who is the exact representation of who the father is. So even more so, now we actually have um, a very tangible example in Christ to look at and hold on to to say, now let's let's compare um, what we see of God in the scriptures with Jesus, right? He's an even more uh, 
more specific and, and uh, strong example, right? Absolutely. And I, the thing is, you know, in each of these stories, Jacob already knows who God is. That's why he's able to fight against the wrong representation mm-hmm. of him. Moses can fight against um, who uh, this uh, crazy looking vision of God is because he knows God isn't crazy. And there's another story we haven't talked about with Abraham in Genesis 18, where Abraham's very words are, you know, far be it, you know, from you to do such a thing. You know, I know, AKA, I know who you are. I know this is far from Mm -hmm. you. This is not the kind of thing that you would do, right? In each of these cases, the fight occurs because you know who God is and something doesn't line Mm -hmm. up. So how much more should that matter to us as Christians that when we're reading scripture through a Christ lens and we can see the image of God before us and we see something totally opposite of that image, right? The, the, the solution is not to then say, oh, well, it's scripture, it's the word of God, I have to accept it, and I'll try to make, um, I'll try to make Jesus and uh, this weird devilish kind of portrait mixed together, and somehow I'll come up with a nice cocktail. No, that's not what you do. You have to choose one or the other. Just like Jacob couldn't say, well, God is both a curse and a <laughs> blessing. No, you had to reject the curse. And demand the blessing. Moses can't say, well, you're genocidal, but you know, you're also always forgiving and love. No, it had to be one or the other, yeah. right? So what Christians have failed to sometimes do is to take seriously, especially you know, in conservative communities, to understand that if we are taking seriously that Jesus Christ is in fact the image of God, if there's something in the Bible's portrait of God that is totally opposite of that vision Jesus gave, then we have to make a choice. And that means we have to really embody the name of Israel, those who fight God. It's not that we're really fighting God himself. We're fighting the false images that represent God to demand the true images, which in you know the case we're talking about here would be you know Jesus Christ. Yeah, so this is so great. So Matt, um, give us a little bit of a, some background of like, how is it that you began to ask these kind of questions? How did you arrive at this place? Um, I don't know, where you, where you felt confident of like, you know what? Um, I think not only that you wanted to write this book, but that um, that you felt confident, like, you know what? It's actually a good thing to stand up and question um, God and scripture and these kinds of things. Like, what, was there some specific thing that you went through or some specific, you know, verse you wrestled with? Um, what kind of led you down this path? Well, I mean, it's a it's a long story and far longer than you know we probably have time on this show to to go fully into. But when I was a teenager, I uh, I grew up kind of leaning fundamentalist, um, loving to listen to televangelists who uh, were constantly talking about prophecies and the end of time. And uh, if you had caught me as uh, as a rambunctious, you know, twelve-year-old, I probably would have told you that the Book of Revelation is the easiest book to understand, <laughs> and you know, I can, I can explain it to you in a couple seconds. Just give yeah. me, you know, yeah, that was that was the kind of certainty and and orthodoxy, you know, that sense of I'm right, I got it. Um, you know, in my book, I talk about the fact that when I was around that age, twelve or thirteen, I got like a debate over a doctrinal issue um, in a Walmart store, <laughs> um, and I was just. I was just like, you know, with some random shopper um, who obstinately kept telling me that the Bible text I was saying, you know, didn't exist. 
Um, and was it you know, it just it <laughs> was Jamal. Jamal. <laughs> that man's name, Dang and that man's <laughs> name was Jamal Javanji. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know, no, in all seriousness, um, you know, it was, I was obsessed as people are in that mindset with like certainty and being right. And, you know, reveling in the fact that I'm right. And somebody else isn't, and that's, it's, it's very, uh, toxic in that sense. And so having been in that place, right. The funny thing is when you become a teenager and you live in that, you kind of, you kind of end up becoming uh, cold about your faith. You don't become more hot because you already wasted all that heat when you were like this young preteen. Now that you're getting into your later teenage years, you're like, yeah, 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 B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving Earth. I got the basic instructions. Uh, everything else in there isn't basic, so it's not necessary, so it's whatever. Um, you just kind of begin to lose interest in those things because the bible becomes a textbook and if you've if you've memorized the list then there's not much need then to care about devotion or for understanding what this could do because it's Mm -hmm. one way you know god sent a warning letter and i got the main gist of the message i won't be deceived by the antichrist so you feel good about that but then you you slowly grow cold and what actually ignited my faith was um bart ehrman's book Misquoting Jesus. Wait, 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 That guy's a heretic, right? You do know that he's an atheist, right? No, 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 no. He's an apostate. Oh, get, it, get it right. I apologize. Get it right. No, it, the, the the phrases get get mixed around. It. I'm just. But the thing is, at least he he uses, I think, the phrase agnostic in the book. Um, but yeah, I'm probably one. I'm one of. I'm not the only. I've learned from other people that it happened to them as well. But I'm one of a few people who read uh, Bart's book and it reignited my faith rather than, than, than like made it something that was shaken. Mm. Um, probably because the faith had already dried up so much in terms of heat that, you know, anything could start to spark it. Yeah. But what, Bart, what Bart's book say, did so well. Bart would love to hear that, by the way. Bart, Bart would love to know that his book <laughs> led you even, drew you back into the Christian faith. That's great. I'm sure he would <laughs> love that completely unintended side effect. Um, <laughs> but um, I did end up going on my academic journey and ending up at Yale Divinity School pretty much due to that book. So, I mean, in that part, I think he would, he would appreciate that um, it took me into the world of academia. Um, and I really do owe it to him. I've actually met him uh, and, sh- and shook hands with him once, um, but he doesn't, I don't think, know my story or, or anything. And it was just for a couple seconds. But um, Ehrman's book basically opened up textual criticism to me, the, the study of how the Bible got copied. And what it revealed to me was that the Bible wasn't a one-way conversation, yeah. that there was, in fact, a two-way, that I, as a human being reading it, had to make a decision about what manuscripts were actually preserving the accurate version of what was being said. In fact, I I can't even just quote God. I got to first figure out what manuscripts and what versions and what changes. And instead of scaring me, that just freaking excited me. Oh my goodness. You mean there's a conversation here? You mean there's a role for the Holy Spirit to be active? You mean like there's actually... God invoking human reasoning to help bring about a message. Wow. That was just, it was was just totally the opposite experience of most evangelicals. It just reignited everything for me and made me so engaged. Um, So my deconstructive journey actually began on a high note. I was upset at people who had 
had misrepresented the Bible's history and so forth. But I was excited because suddenly there was this whole new world of spirituality that suddenly I could see, a whole new way of understanding how the Holy Spirit was working. And that eventually led me uh, over time until I came into undergraduate studies. And um, I just slowly but surely came to, to really understand that the Bible was a human book, um, but it was a human book that was just infused with mm-hmm. divinity. Um, and I like, I like what uh, Rob Bell says. He said, um, I, I think it was in his recent book, um, What is the Bible?, um, and he went ahead and said that uh, if you look for, if you expect divinity, you know, you're going to constantly be tripping up over the humanity that's everywhere. But if you expect humanity, you are going to be flabbergasted every time you are finding divinity mm. uh, in the text. Mm. And that has been truly my uh, my hermeneutic, my way of understanding the Bible. As soon as I began to look at it as a human product that God was subverting or using, um, suddenly it just came totally alive for me. And then it culminated for this book with an ethics class that I was in where um, the famous uh, Euthyphro's Dilemma, uh, which is basically something that Socrates ends up asking a question of this guy Euthyphro, and he says, well, here's the dilemma. Um, are things good, and that's why the gods like them, because they're good, so their goodness is separate from the gods, the gods are simply recognizing it, or is it the case that um, it is good because the gods have declared it? Right. So, you know, the, the thing isn't actually good, it's just good because the god has said it. So, neither solution of the dilemma you know, has been very appealing to Christians because of the fact that either one, you're stuck with saying that, you know, this is divine command theory. God, God's morality is arbitrary. It's just whatever God says, and that's what, you know, is good, um, which means he can change and it would still be good. You know, one day don't kill, the next day kill. It's okay because the authority of his word is what makes it moral. Wait, wait. So that's Calvinism, right? <laughs> 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 oh, okay. <laughs> that, that that definitely deserves that definitely deserves some sound effects. <laughs> but um, but you know, it's like when the other option is to say that goodness is almost equivalent to God as like a rival. That you know, as far back as you go, there was God and there was goodness. Um, mm-hmm. And neither one really fits well, especially with the biblical worldview, because it's as as these stories I've been sharing the the two about Jacob and Moses, they don't line up with either of these visions because the characters are appealing to God for why they are rejecting the evil, right? They're not they're not appealing to some abstract goodness that's separate from God, and they're like God, remember what is good. No, no. They're expecting that this is God's character. Goodness and God's character are one and the same. On the other hand, however, they are still having the freedom to object to things that God says. They do not necessarily expect that just because God is good and God says something, that that means that what God said is good. Mm. So there is this unique middle ground here that is different from uh, either of the options that Socrates originally imagined that the Bible had come up with long before Socrates. And that stuck with me in that class. And I remembered thinking, 
What in the world is this? And so it drove me to ask uh, my uh, honors program advisor, can I do this as my community involvement project? And (laughs) that was a tough sell. And let me write a book that will really affect communities. And that's my community involvement project. And I had to provide a whole proposal and outline, but it did end up getting accepted. And I wrote the first draft of it within the year, my junior year in undergrad. And, um, and then it's just been really a long journey of just further and further exploring this idea. Uh, one of the neatest things that I've had an experience of, um, uh, I took a class this semester with, uh, Miroslav Volf in, uh, at Yale Divinity School. Uh, it was on Martin Luther and his theology. And one of the most interesting things I got to learn in that class, um, was the realization that Martin Luther had known about this idea. And so had John Calvin for all the hate that he just got. Um, and they both, they both understood. And this is the great part. Luther and Calvin have plenty that they disagree with, but they both agreed that fighting God was a requirement for Christians. Wow. Hmm. Wow. They both understood that what Moses was doing, what Jacob was doing, was the very definition of faith. And this is an idea that just got lost over time. But they, when they went through these stories, they recognized God is doing something here. God is trying, and what they understood it as, and that's what my book is arguing, it's a game, as Luther calls it, or a test. In other words, God here in these texts is testing his people to say, do you really know who I am? If I was to stand next to Satan and suddenly I was to speak like Satan, would you know to reject me because what I was saying came from Satan? Or would you just accept whatever I said because it was coming out of the mouth of God? Yeah. You know, it's like if Satan was suddenly in the throne room and he was saying, well, I speak from the authority of God now. Right? Does that suddenly mean that Satan's moral because, you know, he got the authority? No, right? There's a reason that Satan is rejected and God is uplifted. There's a reason Jesus is the image of God and others aren't, right? And so, in a sense, what Luther and Calvin saw this as is that this was a test to see if when you were faithful to God, your true test of fidelity to God was whether or not you loved God enough to know that if God started to betray his own character, you would call him out for it. You would not allow that to stand. And in our modern language, we'd probably say um, that this is a test of logical coherency, right? God is not arbitrary. If I believe that God is good, I cannot simultaneously claim that God is also bad or that God doesn't want you to kill, but by the way, God also kills lots of people over here and does all these, right? It's, it's eliminating the contradictions and saying that if God is good, he is going to generally go towards this good, and you can't have aberrations from that. You can't just have this thing go off the tracks. So if you do see that, right, then you know, and Jesus for us becomes that big roadmap to, to realize this is the direction God goes in. God is love. This is the place it heads to. When you see things that go opposite of that, then you know, ah, this is where I'm supposed to say no to God. Not that I'm saying no to God. It's that I'm saying no to these images that God is being presented as to say, no, 
this is definitely not the God I worship. Um, as some of the earliest Christians uh, would say, you know, I am an atheist towards all these other gods because these other gods are the opposite of yeah. who God's true character yeah. is, right? God is not a God of war like Mars. God is not a God of, um, you know, total controlling power or lust or these other elements that some gods represented. No, we worship a different God, a God of love. That's really where um, the emphasis for this book really drove from, you know, was, was carried from, was understanding that I was so tired of some of the debates we've constantly had in Christianity uh, between conservatives and liberals about the inspiration of the Bible. It's always going back and forth about, you know, inerrancy and do you believe the Bible is without error or do you think we have the words to know if it's without error? Guess what these Bible stories reveal to us? They reveal it doesn't matter even if we did have the words of God exactly. We could have a totally inerrant word of God just like Moses and Jacob did, and you would still be required to reject those words if they countered God's very character. Oh, hell yeah. Right? That, that's totally. Huge. Yeah. That changes the entire conversation. It makes inerrancy as a doctrine completely unbiblically redundant. It is not something that's actually a conversation piece at all, because in the end, whether you are speaking to God face to face and you have his very words will not actually be the determining factor as to whether or not you should listen to them or obey them or respect them. There is another factor beyond that. And until we are focusing on where the Bible's actually pointing us to, the heart of God, we are going to be continuing to have unproductive conversations that just lead us into circles that never go anywhere. And that's where we've been going. Yeah. Nowhere. Yeah, I, think, hey, I, I just dropped my hey, microphone. It just dropped. So, yeah. yeah. Amen to that. But um, you keep mentioning this book. But what? what is the book, man? <laughs> what what is the book? And where can people get this fucking book? Because I, I read a, an advanced copy and it's it's really good. It really, really is. So please, what I mean, what is the title? Where can you get it? So the title, because I want I want every listener to get this book because it is important. It is important for people to get this. Well, um, I, I'm I'm really glad and excited that you uh, did get to read an advanced copy. And just so you know, full disclosure for people who don't know, Matt did endorse the book. His name is on one of the first few pages of the book with a big fat you know paragraph. So just to be clear, <laughs> thanks for feeding. Thanks for feeding my ego, my man. Um, well, but, did anybody else? Did anyone else endorse the book? No, nah, nah, that was the only one. He was the only one. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Keith also. <laughs> Keith has also gone ahead and endorsed this book. Um, much to my excitement and happiness, he also wrote. Uh, both Keith and Matt wrote really great uh, one-line descriptions of the book, um, and. It was more than a line. It was more than a line. <laughs> and uh, what are you talking about? along with you and Keith, um, a number of other people have gone ahead and endorsed the book, including Peter Rollins, uh, John Shelby Spong, Brian D. McLaren, um, yeah, Danielle Schroyer, uh, Donna Bauman, James F. McGrath. Uh, there's so many. Uh, Jeff Turner. The, the list could keep going on and on and on. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful that a lot of people have genuinely responded really well to this book. So what is the book called? 
Uh, the book is called Saying No to God, right? Straightforward. Straightforward. <laughs> straightforward. Um, and uh, the subtitle is A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Right? So the approach, oh, yeah. radical, right? And we don't normally associate in conservative circles radicalness with faithfulness. And yet, it's not being radical to be contrarian or to, you know, just be a protester, but it's, it's, it's protesting for the very heart of God. In fact, what John Calvin used the phrase, it, it, um, and he and um, Bart, uh, the theologian. Oh, Carl, uh, Carl Bart? Carl Bart. There we go. Carl. I'm like, why don't I remember Carl's first name? There we go. Yeah. And Carl Bart and Calvin, they both uh, described it as seeking from the heart of God to appeal to God. Oh. Um, and that's essentially, uh, what this kind of radical approach is. It's recognizing and identifying what is the heart of God in scripture, Jesus, Mm. and then taking that and saying, okay, how then do I begin to look at all of scripture through that Christ-like lens, through that heart of God and appeal and learn how to read scripture as I do in the 21st century. And then the second part of this book is entirely spent looking at specific issues in Christianity like homosexuality, like eternal hellfire torment, like patriarchy, like racism. And instead of saying, no, the Bible doesn't have these things, or, you know, no, you're miss, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, it's saying the Bible is filled with patriarchy. The Bible is filled with sexism. The Bible is filled with racism. The Bible is filled with crazy, even hell-promoting messages. And the reality is we need to say no to those things. Absolutely. And not just because we want to say no, but in fact, there already are people in the Bible who say no to those very things. Or, as in the case of slavery, there's people who only a hundred years ago were saying no to scripture uh, in order to create the world we now live in. So the thing is, this book is really just trying to change the conversation to get us away from these endless circles and debates about inerrancy to say, no, the real issue is the text we have is very human. But from the very beginning of our tradition, God always knew we were going to have to be fighting it. If we are going to embody the name of Israel, those who fight God, we can't be afraid to start saying no. It's, it's what we're required to do. The question becomes, how do we say no? And that's mm-hmm. important, yep. is understanding we are appealing from the heart of God to God, right? This is not my heart. This is not my desires. This is understanding what is true goodness, what is true love. That is at the heart of God, and then judging everything through that hermeneutical yeah. lens. So that's, it's a big project. It's a big idea, um, but it has the potential to really help bridge the divides. Um, and that's what uh, Peter Rowland's endorsement for the book was, is that um, this book could potentially help to um, show a path uh, uh, different from progressive Christianity, different from conservative Christianity, a path forward for both of them to come together. Yeah. Well, man, I'm so glad you wrote this book. I'm so excited that people will get a chance to uh, engage it and read it and study it. And I, I do hope it does exactly what Mr. Rollins said. I think it has that potential to really um, 
change the conversation and get people thinking in different ways. And that it, that's what's so exciting about it. It moves us forward um, rather than moving us backwards. And it, and what it, it's just genius, Matt, the way you've done it, the way you've framed it, really just using biblical principles themselves to sort of uh, kind of slingshot us in a different direction. So way to go, man. Great job. Great book. And thank you so much for being our, uh, our heretic of the week. Thank you so much for having me. But, you know, I've got to be I've got to be humble here and be honest. Almost the entirety of the book is really either the biblical text itself or history. And so, you know, as much as you, I appreciate the, the kind words, the, the truth of the matter is I really am a messenger. I'm just quoting Bible texts <laughs> that have been totally, totally ignored and giving them the spotlight that they have deserved. And hopefully, you know, um, that's the strength of the mm-hmm. book, that uh, people don't have to look at me. They don't have to rely on any of my degrees. They don't need to think to themselves, you know, is he smart enough to talk about this? They will be able to look at the text themselves and they will be able to see plain as day what Martin Luther and John Calvin and Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, Soren Kierkegaard and a number of other people clearly saw when they read the text which is that God has granted us an amazing responsibility to defend his character. And hopefully we can start readjusting our eyes uh, and starting to see Jesus Christ uh, as that lamb uh, and stop uh, mixing up the lamb uh, with the metaphor of a dragon who is not connected Mm. to the lamb. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. Good stuff, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you so much. I've been, it's been a joy to be on the program. Uh, I love you guys. Love the show. Oh, Matthew freaking Corpman. I love you so much. And I, this book is seriously amazing for not only is it heavy enough to break your toe, if you drop it on your foot, cause it's, it's a big book, but, um, it's, it's, it's not just, um, I mean, I just love what he's doing. I love what he's saying and I love his approach. And, uh, I gotta, I gotta tell you personally, I feel like keep your eye on this guy. Cause, uh, He's, he's going to write many more books and do many more amazing things. Very, very cool stuff. I love how his interview lines up with our topic today, which is resistance and protest and where... <laughs> trying to throw me off my game. And where does that fit in our life? <laughs> That's better. That's better. I feel better now. I swear to God, you do that one more time with me, Ralph, and I will walk out of this show. I will protest this show. Oh, don't protest, yes. <laughs> Hell no, we won't go. No, that's right. Uh, so this is this is a really good, um, I mean, you know, we're doing this Culture War series. Sorry, I forgot to announce that. Hey, everybody, we're doing a Culture War series. And um, yeah, so this, uh, what I think is interesting about this topic too is, um, and, and I, I talk to people who don't realize this, I guess it depends on what kind of news that you watch. Um, but, uh, Winnie and I watch like PBS news hour and they, they go into a lot of depth and more of what's going on in the world. And I mean, like right now, all around the world at this moment, there are protests going on and we're talking sustained. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people for weeks and sometimes months at a time, every single day, filling the streets and protests in, in Hong Kong, France, Spain, Chile, Lebanon, Ecuador, Iran, and Iraq, Bolivia. I mean, it, it's a huge, huge list of these protests that are going on around the world, all of them for different reasons, some for human rights reasons, 
some for economic reasons, some to overthrow, uh, you know, leaders that they feel like are corrupt and those kinds of things. But I mean, protest is going on right now more than I can remember in my lifetime. And I'm an old man. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we're talking about this right now. It seems like it's pretty relevant. Like there's a whole lot of protests going on right now. Mm. So why is that? What do we do about that? And what, what should we do? I mean, should we be protesting and how do we protest? It's a great question. You know, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, of course, we should protest. It's just how should we? And I've, and I've actually heard some Christians say that, that we shouldn't protest, uh, let's say, our president or the, the current administration. We shouldn't protest those things because we should, quote unquote, be praying for them. And I've always thought it was kind of absurd because we have a tradition, Christianity and Judaism, that has a prophetic tradition yep. where protest is like yeah, at the heart of the matter, right? Like, yeah. like Jesus was not just swallowing hook, line, and sinker, the religious authorities or the political authorities, Rome, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees who were kind of running the show, depending on their, their, their office. Uh, we, have, uh, we have the tradition before Jesus, Jeremiah and Isaiah and yeah. Ezekiel, that it, it's a critique of those at the top right now. And it's yeah, just, it's so it's it's yeah it's so interesting that we have a faith tradition, uh, well American Christianity at least that sort of wants to push away that whole well we need to you know you know the whole Romans thirteen sort of thing we we need God has ordained this power to be in place so obey the rules and blah blah blah, but we have a whole tradition on the other hand that is like no this isn't okay this is where it leads you we need to. S- we need to stand up to this. Mm. So how do we stand up to this? Right. That's a good question. How do we stand up yeah. to that? Question of yeah. how. Well, <clears throat> right. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, do I do. I, I think um I think there's <laughs> I think there's one please tell us. There's a way to there's an unhealthy what I would consider maybe an unhealthy way to s- stand up to the <clears throat> powers that be. And then there's a the more healthy way to stand up. <clears throat> so an unhealthy way, I think is I think when people feel victimized <clears throat> or when they feel helpless, there is a sense of anger and frustration that naturally builds. And I think you can see this and Keith, you touched on this, you know, just from like, if you're, if you're getting your media, by the way, I just want to say this about media. I, I, okay. I don't want to get on a soapbox here. It's probably another conversation, but if you're watching mainstream media, you're not really, you, you know, nothing about the world. <laughs> so just, right, right. I mean, they, you, you get a, a, a filtered down version of events to get you focused on things they want you to be focused on. That may sound very conspiratorial, but I actually think there's something to it. So, <laughs> so well, I think I, I, we should talk about that. That's, I think you, that's a good point. Cause even, I, I think there's layers. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, we used to watch ABC news, right? right? And, and it's, and then when we started watching PBS news, it was like, Holy crap, there's so much going on in the world. That's not getting talked sure. about on like ABC and NBC. But even then, even PBS, and they spend, they spend an entire hour, and they do actually talk mm-hmm. about a lot of things in, in great depth. But even they, I've noticed, um, avoid certain topics and avoid mentioning certain things. And I'm like, even they are also kind of politicized a little bit. So there's sort of layers of that. And then you can find other things usually actually on YouTube and uh, online, like Democracy Now! And uh, there's one like Real, RT, Real News. Or RT, like RT, that. RT, 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 yeah, yeah. What's the one, what's the call stand for? Real um, I don't. I don't know. No, it's, it's it's actually Russian. It's, it's Russia today. It, yeah, it, it, no, it's Russian. It is. No, it, it, no. it is Russia based. Yeah, 
it's a Russian based yeah. news outlet. That doesn't, that's, and people will use that as a knock against them. I don't think that's a knock. I think just like anything else, you have to wait. Or even uh, Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is great. Actually. Yeah, Al Jazeera RT. I mean, for me personally, yeah. like, I think it's just like health. You know, you don't want to outsource your health to another person, even if it's a doctor out there. You can, you know, you will make these people your advisors, but you, you want to keep the cards and your like you want to be in charge of your health just like if you want to know what's going on in the world you want to be in charge of that you don't want to just outsource that to the mainstream media because you won't know anything <clears throat> that's just my perspective on that but i yeah. think what i sense when, when you start to get become aware of what's going on around the world there's a lot of people out there that feel like victims to governments or situations that they have no power over and that breeds a lot of contempt and then there's a there's a sense of pushback and kind of like a protest against that. But those, the movements that are sourced in that kind of unrest or victimization energy tend to produce more of the same. They tend to not change things at a, in a, in a fundamental way on the ground. So I don't think that's a helpful way to, to push back. I think a more helpful way is to be empowered and to, is to see how you can be empowered and then, um, from that place of power and authority, declare a new reality and and actually even demand a new reality, um, and that's a very different energy than the protest of feeling like a victim. That's just my right take on it. So, so you're talking about more like the the motivation of where it, the place it's coming from, right? Totally within, but but at this, so I agree with that. I do, um, but then like, what form does it take? Like, so I think there's, uh, like I would recommend. I was actually getting ready for this for this uh, podcast that I, I pulled out, I've got a copy of rules for radicals by Saul Alinsky. If anyone hasn't read that book, that's uh-huh. um, an amazing book. And it's actually, a, it really literally is a textbook. It's a handbook for how to effectively um, protest in ways that create social change. And, and it's, it's the kind of thing that's literally been used in America and in other countries uh, nationwide, internationally um, to really, empower the average person um, to nonviolently uh, affect change through protest and things like that. And that's, that's an amazing book. I think there's some really great insights. You know, it's funny you mentioned that rules for radicals by Saul Alinsky, because that, if you say that to the wrong group of people, like, they, oh, I, know. I mean, you yeah. know, that, that book has been demonized in conservative yeah. circles. I mean, Obama, oh, I Barack Obama was, you know, I, I think, and, and even, you know, some folks in the more the left progressive, you know, yes. end of the of the spectrum have like really taken that book to heart and have adopted those principles. And so I the conservatives will really hammer that book and say that's like the the manifesto of Satan and this is you yeah, know yeah. a communist yes. way of taking over the world and that kind of thing. <laughs> so. But it works, by the way. But it but the principles are here's the thing about it. I agree with you, you're right. But if you just look at the principles that that it talks about, here's what I think is fascinating too. I mean doesn't it seem though like it's more of a, a progressive kind of a mindset that like looks to protest and cause change through those kinds of social actions than conservatives? Like I think the conservative way of doing things is more about cozying up to power structures um and trying to just do things directly politically. That's an interesting thought. I don't I haven't really thought about that, but that's an interesting I haven't either until I, just now. I, I don't know if, I don't know if that's true. I, I I think that's going on now, but think about when Obama was president. Like oh, the, tea party. the way to protest yeah, the was tea party. to get yeah, the Tea Party yeah, to get that's um, true. And, and, and to like make sure you stock up on your guns and ammo and, and get gold and uh this and that and have a 
have a go bag and and get together with your community <laughs> members so you can defend yeah, the homestead. Yeah. Like yeah, preppers, preppers. Yeah. yeah, and so there's different there's different protests all the time. I, Trump was a protest. I think the no, Trump right. could he could have never been elected unless it was uh, in the current climate, in the current context. There's no way someone like Trump would have got elected. But that, I think, was a protest vote against what some people thought uh, was, you know, the problem with the country, the direction the country was going. So again, it, it comes back, we're all protesting in some sort of way. We're either protesting with our dollar, we're protesting with our vote, or we're getting out in the streets and we're doing activism. So it's like, yeah, how, the, the million dollar question becomes, how, what is the right way to protest? Um, and what should we be protesting? Right. So it maybe depends on who's in power, right? Well, sure. <clears throat> well, yeah. I mean, the, I think it depends on, look, it doesn't matter. I mean, if the left is in power, then people on the right are going to freak out. If people on the right are in power, people on the left are going to freak out. I mean, that's always going to happen. Um, uh, but the, again, it comes down to the way we do it. Right. Um, and the ways like, are there ways, of course, there's ways of doing it that are, that are, violent that are that are um like scapegoating the other side flat out i mean this is this is honestly what bothers me the most and this happens on both sides this is not a left or a right thing i've seen this from both conservative and progressive uh sides of the of the, of the fence um to demonize the other person to flat out make up crap that isn't real like to basically lie you know invent like here's the thing if you if you genuinely don't like the ideas and policies or uh you know uh, actions of an of of a, someone in power um then protest that like you don't have to invent stuff that isn't real to demonize them i mean people feel like they do but uh, it's sort of like look just just uh that tactic of of inventing stuff and lying and, and creating stuff it, it undermines your position it undermines your your authority and what you have to say like in other words if what you have to sell if what you have to say if what if the change you want to create is so great, then focus on that. Focus on how great that change is going to be and why people need, you know, to to listen to your ideas rather than to just paint the other side as so evil and so bad. And this gets into toxic tribalism. Um, but it's like that tactic of, of demonizing the other side. Uh, that's what really bothers me. And I, I would rather just see people tell me why your ideas are so great and why, why it's going to be better to consider your ideas rather than to focus on inventing crap that isn't mm. true about the other side. Yes. Yes. And what if, <clears throat> and just thinking about the, our guest that we had on Matthew um, and his new book, saying no to God, um, resisting God, that kind of thing. Like I was just thinking about like, who, who, who does that? Like, and I think, I think the pushback that Matthew's book, just from the title alone, saying no to God can elicit amongst evangelicals or people from a you know traditional religious background would say, who do you think you are to say no to God? And I think that's a good question. And I think it ties directly into um, how we protest. You know, do we, do we do it in an un uh, empowered way or do we do it in an empowered way? Because I think like in order to say no to God, you have to realize who you are. Like who, what kind of a person says no to God? Well, someone who's like God. Because we're on equal terms, you know. Yeah. Like, like there, there's this. I know that sounds blasphemous here, but think about this. Think about like, do you remember? <laughs> um, there's a scene from Braveheart, and there's that Irishman. Uh, you guys all seen Braveheart, but there's this, the Irishman, and they're like, and he said, uh, an Irishman's forced to talk to God because <laughs> he has. That's the only person that, uh, like, he has to talk 
Like it's the only one that's as equal. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we're like, wow. we're forced to talk. To <laughs> but I love that concept here. And the, and the reason I'm saying this is because an unempowered way to protest is to feel like you're beneath. Someone's over you, ruling over you, controlling you. Now you're one of these peasants that's got to revolt against the rulers. Okay. I don't think that's a healthy way to revolt. So what if by an empowered way of, of understanding, you're going, okay, I'm going to protest the way kind of like the Irishman and Braveheart. I know that's a, this is an analogy here. I'm not advocating violence. I'm just saying like the Irishman and Braveheart resisted the ones who were terror, the, 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 the Lords that were ruling over them, which were the British by recognizing his own. And this is why we love that character, the Irishman who was crazy, <laughs> you know, but he was like in that movie, he was like, yeah, I'm, you know, like, they tried to, they actually, the, the, the people uh, that he was joining forces with when he said, you know, like I, I, an Irishman is forced to talk to God um, because that's the only one that is equal. I mean, they accuse him of blasphemy, but you almost have to adopt that persona in order to overthrow yeah. tyranny and oppression. And the reason I say this is because, and actually from the Bible, if I could just read a passage from the Bible. It doesn't exist. Go ahead. Can, I, th- I think it doesn't exist, but it doesn't exist. Well, okay, okay, maybe not the Bible, but Psalm eighty-two. I'll just read yeah, Psalm eighty-two right. because that exists apart from the Bible. So, <laughs> so Psalm eighty-two is is in, this is interesting because it has to do with oppression, <clears throat> and um, and this comes up in the New Testament too. But it, I'll just read it. Psalm eighty-two says, "God presides in the great assembly; He renders judgment among the gods." G O D S plural. This is really interesting. I love that that language there. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. And they ask the question. God asked the question to the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? It's a good question. And then, and then God is talking to the gods. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then verse five says, the gods, G-O-D-S, know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now think about that. That is a, that is a picture of our planet right now. The foundations of the earth are like very weak. They're shaking. The gods, there's all these gods running around here that are walking around in darkness. They don't know anything. They're un- basically another way of saying they're unconscious. And then God says to the gods in verse six, I said, you are gods, G-O-D-S. You are all sons of the most high. Very, this is a very important passage, Psalm 82, because Jesus quotes that to the Pharisees. So that's the same passage. And so when Jesus says before Abraham was born, I am claiming divinity for himself. And then when they try to pick up rocks to kill him, he says, for what good work are you going to stone me? He says, not for any good, the Pharisees say, it's not for any good work that we stone you. It's you being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. And he says, no, no, no. Like the scriptures, does not the scripture say this about all of us? Ye are gods. So basically verse six, Psalm 82, verse six, I, I said, you are God. So if we understand, if we understand Psalm 82 in its proper context, it is God speaking to other gods saying, hey, you're gods. You are gods. Why do you allow this to happen on the earth? How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? When are you going to defend the weak and the fatherless mm-hmm. and uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed? You can rescue the, the weak and the needy. And he's basically reminding them. Yeah. He's like, and then he's saying the gods, they don't yeah. know nothing. They're running around the earth like they don't know anything. Did I not say that you are gods? Yeah. Well, I, 
that you're children of the most high. Like this is the key, I believe, to to yeah. true change is understanding your identity as a divine person. And this is what I believe Jesus was referencing, you know, by claiming it's the only way to resist and oppress uh, to to come to rise up against this system is to understand who are you. You're not a weak person. You're not needy. You know, you're God. You're literally a part of this divine essence. That's who you are. Yeah. So I, I, I hate to do this, but Jamal, uh, I'm going to agree with you. Um, <laughs> because um, I think another interesting verse also in the Bible, which sometimes does maybe exist, but then it says First Corinthians and First Corinthians uh, chapter two and verse 16, there's this amazing thing. And I know I, I used to gloss over this. I never saw what was happening, but um, now I can see it. So it, what happens in First Corinthians 2.16, um, Paul actually quotes Isaiah 40. He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 40, chapter, thir- uh, chapter 40, verse 13. And, he, and so that verse says, for who has known the mind of the Lord right. so as to instruct him? And actually, I think that chapter also has that, that common phrase about, you know, uh, how, can the, how can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me so, right? All that. So, so Isaiah, that Isaiah passage is sort of uh, daring us and questioning us, like, you know, or asking us, like, who are you to question God? Who are you to, to instruct the mind of God? And Paul's response to that in 1 Corinthians 2.16 is this, but we have the mind of Christ. And what he's actually saying there is, you do, right? The answer to the question, who, who has known the mind of the Lord to instruct him is you. You have the right to, to do that because you have the mind of Christ. And so I think it agrees with what you're saying, that we actually are encouraged. We do have this place of, of like, of course we should do that. Of course we should question these things. Yeah. Because why? Because we've been given the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And that's it's it's so that empowers us to question these things, to to know the mind of God or to say, Why have you made me this? Or why why is the world this way? It's, it's, and to do something about yeah, it. Yeah, that's that's so, fascinating. I, I, that's a really cool, a cool example there. And I, I it's interesting that people are asking God, God, what are you gonna do about the wicked? God, what are you going to do about the oppressed? What are you going to do about this? Yep. And it's like, why are we asking God to do something? God's asking, asking us, do you not know you're like God saying, Hey, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the wicked? Right. <laughs> what are you going to do about the poor being oppressed? What are you yep. going to do? Because, and then, you know, I think people specifically Christians uh, lose their faith. They have a crisis of faith because they, they look at the evil in the world and they go, where is God? And that is precisely because they don't know that they are literally being called by the divine gods. Like you're being called God. God is calling you God. <laughs> so it's like, uh, whoa. Well then, yeah. yeah. So you can ask the question. You have to look in the mirror and ask the question. Wait a minute. Where's God? Like, well, where are you? Yeah. And this is interesting that all the great work mother Teresa did in helping the poor in India came because of this very thing that she asked the question. She was probably, you know, again, I'm, I'm I don't mean to knock her, but she's a Roman Catholic, you know? So like a good Roman Catholic who, sees himself lower beneath God, asks the question. She sees all the suffering in India and says, God, what are you going to do about all this? And I love that, that, that it was almost like a boomerang. Like that question came back to her. She sensed as soon as she asked the question, she heard God ask her the same question. What are you going to do about it? Right. No, I think, um, yeah, it's sort of like, like you said, like Christians are sitting around waiting for Jesus to hurry up and come back and make it all better. And yet what we're missing is that we are the incarnation of Christ in the world right now. And so Yes, the question might be, you know, when is Christ going to do something? But the, what we're missing is that we are the incarnation of Christ. And so, yes, Christ can effect some amazing change in the world. 
but we'll, it, but in, as long as we think it's out there and it's up there and it's coming soon, just wait, twiddle your thumbs, and one day that's going to happen. It'll never happen until we recognize and until we move, nothing will change. Until like until we change, nothing changes. Until we move, nothing happens. Right, and so um, a lot has been said, and I want to comment on a lot of it. I'm gonna. The Psalm tw- uh, 82 stuff, let's save this for our Patreon listeners because I had some things to say about that. But I, I love what you guys are saying about uh, about the rest of it. And so then it becomes to, well, how, how do we see the image of God represented in, let's say, someone like Jesus? How does that affect change? And what's interesting is God does not then become some sort of all-powerful being that does it. God becomes a, a servant who does it and protests or resists the current structures in a very specific way. And it becomes a very subversive way, which I think, we, which is why we get the folks who are like Martin Luther King or even Gandhi, who are affecting the realist change from a servant role. Does that does that make sense? Which that, that that that's like the most interesting thing to me is that I think when we learn how to resist, like God resists yeah. the, the current power structures, it's that in it's not in the typical way that we think of through violence or through using the same sort of energy that those who oppress use. It's actually by resisting, not by being a doormat, but by standing firm uh, and 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 serving those. Yeah who are at the bottom with yeah. us and, and, it, and it affects change in such a, in such a real way. So, so yeah, if we want to say we are like God, if we are gods, if we are made in that image, it becomes a very um, subversive sort of uh, approach to how to affect real change. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think, um, yeah, and it's, that's what is so fascinating and very counterintuitive about the way that Jesus worked. And this is what Gandhi picked up on and then Martin Luther King picked up on, this whole idea. And by the way, this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. Um, I encourage anyone listening to go and look up uh, Erica Chenoweth. Um, she has an amazing ser- series of lectures. She's written books on this topic um, and done research, not just like her opinion. We're talking like over the last... Um, I think two decades that she's done research on um, the effectiveness of nonviolent protests and, around the world. And, and it's on the rise. Like it's, it's more effective. It is way, way more effective than violent resistance. So nonviolent resistance is, is way more effective and is exponentially growing in effectiveness around the world. Um, and it, so it is, it, it seems like it, it would make sense. It seems like, no, no, that can't work. But um this is a principle that actually gets picked up on, and I hate to mention it again, the the satanic uh, progressive book uh, by Saul Alinsky, Rules for Radicals. But in that book, he picks up on that the, the model that Jesus used and that Gandhi and Martin Luther King picked up on, which is that uh, it, when you when you resist it in a nonviolent way, and again, it's 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 not being a doormat. It's being very very intentional, very very strategic about the ways that you resist nonviolently. Um, your power is in the way those that you're resisting react, and you're actually using their reactions against them. You know, it's almost like this kind of jujitsu thing, right? Um, so it's really, it's really interesting to to study that subject and um, to do some research on it because that, the reality is that it does work um, for lots of reasons. I don't, we don't have time to go into it, but uh, it really does work. And but but by kind of following that model. 
um, recognizing that we have power even in our, and this again seems counterintuitive, that there's power in weakness. There's power in submission. There's power yeah. in uh, solidarity with those who are the oppressed. Um, again, it's not power over, it's power under. And it sort of undermines, it's a subversive way mm. of undermining the power of those that you're wanting to change and resist. Yeah, I think we see this uh, when the centurion says, surely this was the son of God. Yeah. We, we see like, wow, that, that, that had a powerful effect on that person when God was at his weakest. Yeah. And it changed even the centurion who's involved in, in the murdering of the son of God. Yeah. So I, there, there totally is power in weakness. Yeah. I, I think Moltmann, Moltmann talked about that. I think. Oh yeah, there's often the power. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. And the the power in the weakness is rec. I think recognizing not that you're weak is recognizing that the persona you've taken on is weak. This would be my understanding of it. So like the power is like not to say yeah I'm weak. Um, it's to go well, yeah this whole persona that I've adopted as this this separate being that's just under the thumb of everything and everybody is really weak and so then you recognize that's not who I am. Um, that's really not my true essence. And then there's the strength found that even in that very moment that you disconnect from this. I mean, I want to say to oppressed people sometimes, one of the, the, I mean, one of the last things I think oppressed people need to be told is that you're oppressed. Right. Because oppressed peoples that feel oppressed feel like, damn, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like empathy only goes, empathy is great for a season, but it won't get you out of the pit. So the idea is like what I think is really imp- what what oppressed people really need is to is really what Psalm eighty two says, which is God looking at the oppressed people saying, "I said you are gods." <laughs> like, hey, like Psalm eighty two verse six, I said you are gods. Why do you let this continue? Why do you act like you have no power over the situation? Do you not know that you are gods? Which is, I think, the reason that's being highlighted. And even Jesus highlighted it later is to say, look, like that's the only solution is to come back to your identity. It always goes back to identity because gods, first of all, don't take, take this stuff. Like if you're gods, you don't, you don't play the game. And not only that, you will be able to stand up to uh, God, the, the, the percent, you know, the, the God, the concept of God that is presented commonly out there in the world. And you can say, no, I say, just like Matthew's book, say no to God. Why? How could you even do that? And I don't know. I haven't read Matthew's <laughs> books. So I don't know if he gets into this, but I, I think the only way you, you could actually do that is to question, yes, is to ask yes, questions, yes. you know? Um, and uh, the only way you can really ask questions is to know that just like the Irishman and Braveheart, Hey, I got the right to do that because we're on the mm. same page here. <laughs> yeah. We're on the same team. Yeah. Part of the we same family. The That's right. Awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, good stuff as always, guys. Um, but before we wrap it up, I have uh, I have one more announcement. Is that okay that I did two announcements? Uh, yeah, I guess. Okay. Well, we hit uh, the two hundred thousand download mark. What? <laughs> Wait. Yeah, two hundred thousand downloads. Are you two hundred thousand? Yeah, I feel like we just hit one hundred thousand. Now we're at two hundred thousand. Damn. And. So a huge, huge shout out to everyone listening to this thank because you. That, that's mind blowing. Thank you. Yes. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. 
love doing this show would do it if we didn't have 200,000 downloads, but am blown away the fact that that so many people have listened to this. And so a huge thank you from all of us. Uh, for those who are listening are, are among the 200,000 downloads, make sure, you know, we have a website so that you can always stay up to date. You can, uh, Christmas, well, Christmas is coming up and, and if you're listening to this, it's gonna be late, but if you want to get a late Christmas present, we have a store, go to our store, uh, all that good stuff. So it's heretichappyhour.com. And again, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. And I also want to say a big, huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, um, and if you love the podcast and you can't get enough, uh, we will, we record bonus content, bonus interviews, bonus conversations, videos, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and for as little as we're at $2 a month, right? You can unlock just all kinds of awesome content and keep up with what's going on. And you also get into our private Facebook group, which you can only get into as a Patreon supporter and continue the conversation there. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, <clears throat> we have a live show coming up. Um, on Saturday, January 4th. I believe you guys are coming to that. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think I'm we gonna, might make it. Yeah. I'm going to try to make it. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So again, if, if you're not, if you guys aren't there, then, you know, I'll, <laughs> no show. I'll, I'll hold the fort down. But yeah. Jamal got it. You got it. <laughs> no, no, Saturday. I will. We're all going to be there, everybody. We'll all be there. Very, very nice. So Saturday, J- January 4th at Sidecar uh, offices, Sidecar Donuts, their corporate space, uh, their office space in um in costa mesa so that is at 6 30 i believe and i think we're talking can we talk about what we're going to talk about then or is that is that the mm. secret yeah we can sure. yeah give them a little give them a little uh taste, we're going to yeah. talk about we're going to talk about celebrity christianity and in case in case you think we're done with that that uh that, that funny business um kanye west we're looking your way mm. he's yeah. going to be there well, we don't know, but let's talk about the Kanye phenomena that seemed to got. He seems to have everybody in an uproar here. Let's talk about that. Is this another example of outsourcing our our need? Yeah. yeah. What do we think here? Again, okay. We, we is there good to it? Is there is there negative to it? Let's we'll, we'll flesh that out. Come bring your opinions. Bring your Kanye impersonations. Come <laughs> come come uh, on uh, on the fourth. It will be a lot of fun. And also <clears throat> rate us and review us on iTunes. And by the way, we got a negative review recently. Hey, they didn't hear. Listen, if it's negative, don't leave it. Only five stars and only positive reviews. Yeah, that's all we want. Yeah. And they called me out by name. Yeah, they called you out. They, they attacked Matt in the review. That's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. They're listening to the show and they review us that way. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on, everybody. Where's the love? Where's the love?